Brittany was not a minor when this started. She was, it was not like she was a 17-year-old kid who you know couldn't handle her finances. She was a 27-year-old woman. To me, that's what racism is. Those that have power not granting access to a certain group. If all my kids transfer, I'm going to go pick up 10 kids in the portal, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to still win. Mm, right. I'm going to survive, but the kids are not going to survive because some of them are going to make bad decisions. You're listening to Pod Suey, the week's top stories served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Former state Republican Party Chair Sala Nusis and state Democrat Party Chair Mark Brewer introduced an initiative that would have Michigan join 15 other states in the National Popular Vote Compact. If adopted, the initiative would award all 15 of Michigan's electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote, regardless of whether or not that candidate actually won the state of Michigan. Solanusis made the rounds on WJR, and here he is with Kevin Dietz. Look, you know, the, the problem today is that four out of five Americans live in states that are either decidedly Republican or decidedly Democrat. And what that means is in general elections, when candidates are running for president, uh, they don't campaign in those states. So they completely ignore uh, the issues that affect the states and they uh, ignore the voters in the states. So if you had a national popular vote, what we would really do is we would have a situation where every voter in every state is politically relevant every single time. And that's really what our goal is, is to make sure that they do campaign in all 50 states and that whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, that your vote actually counts. So that would change things quite a bit, though. Uh, right now, uh, Michigan has 15 electoral votes. Uh, our our votes went to Joe Biden in the last election, even though we were pretty much split between our 10 million people. Under this new system, right. just half of half five million votes would have gone to uh, Donald Trump, and five million would have gone to Joe. That's right, and and so that that then the, even the losing side, regardless of who lost, their votes would actually count because they would be part of the national popular vote. And to me, that's one of the advantages. So Michigan's a very good example. You know, if you're on the winning side, you get 100% of the electors, and that feels good. But if you're on the losing side, you get zero, and your vote completely doesn't count. So it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat. You get out there and get 49.9% of the vote. When the other guy gets 50.1% of the vote, they get all the delegates. Under a national popular vote, we make sure that every voice is heard in all 50 states, And I think, you know, look, today we elect over 514,000 elected officials in this country, all of whom are elected by who gets the most votes except for one, the one that represents the country as a whole. And I think what that does is it distorts politics and it distorts public policy as well. And so for all practical purposes, what happens today is we elect the president of the battleground states of America versus the president of the United States of America. And I think a reform like this is exactly what the founders had in mind when they, when they created the Electoral College because they wanted states to act in their selfish best interest to make sure their voices are heard. And when you've got 40 to 42 to 45 states in a presidential election that are ignored, uh, it goes exactly against what the founders' intent was with regards to making sure that everybody participates in the electoral process. Now, if we had done a national popular vote uh, in, tw- in 2016, Hillary Clinton would have beat Donald Trump, right? Technically, that's correct, but it's important to remember we would have run a very different campaign. Uh, Republicans and Democrats only campaigned in 10 states that election year. So 40 states were completely ignored. So we really don't know what the honest turnout would have been in all these other 40 states across the country. So, you know, we're changing the rules on how you, you know, count the votes, which also means we're going to change the rules how you run an election. 
So, you know, it's just like playing football. If all of a sudden you would have changed rules and say, hey, you cross the 50-yard line and it's a touchdown, then the, then the game's different, right? So when we change these rules, um, what we're going to do is force both Republicans and Democrats to have a 50-state strategy when it doesn't matter whether I get a vote from Michigan or California or Oklahoma or, you know, any other state in the country, we're going to be going after every voter. We're going to have to talk to every voter in every state. We're going to start talking to, about issues that matter to every voter in every state rather than pandering to whatever the issues may be at a given election year to the few battleground states that currently drive public policy and politics, which I think is a problem that we, we, we can cure with this. So Michigan's a swing state, so whether you're Republican or Democrat, you you probably get out there and vote because you feel like your vote matters. Right. But if you're a Republican and you live in California or New York you're, you're, and you want to vote for president, you're, you know that if you're a Republican, you're, your person's not going to win. The Democrat's likely to win, and you may not vote. Do you think more people would participate if it were absolutely. national? Yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely correct in your example. If you take a look at battleground states, on average, voter turnout in battleground states is somewhere between 75 to 76 percent of all voters come out and vote. And just given the way our voting rolls are and where people move and people die and all that kind of stuff, that gets pretty close to being full participation in most states across the country. When you take a look at states that are safely either Democrat or Republican, voter turnout will drop into the low 50s, sometimes even under 50 percent, because people know that their vote doesn't count. And so, you know, people on my side of the aisle, the Republican side of the aisle, say, well, New York and California is going to dominate the electoral process. Well, I mean, I've been in New York and California and talked to Republicans there, and we actually had the Republican Senate in New York pass this bill because they said we're still going to lose New York, but instead of losing by two or three or four million votes in any given year, maybe we bring the margins down to one to two million, which allows us to play more in outstate New York. So when you create a system where every voter in every state is politically relevant, both political parties are going to have an incentive to be turning out their voters in their respective states across the board. And, you know, look, you know, my friend Mark Brewer and I uh, very rarely agree on an issue. And, and we've, you know, fought each other for years. But both of us, I believe, you know, he, he being more misguided than I, uh, believe he's doing what is best for the state of Michigan and for the country and has a different approach to it. And I have the same position on most issues. But here's one that we've come together on. The Ford Motor Company announced they will spend $11.4 billion on four new electronic vehicle battery plants in Kentucky and Tennessee, leading Paul W. Smith to ask Ford CEO Jim Farley. Well, this is great, except why is it in Tennessee and Kentucky and not all in Michigan? Great question. Well, as you know, we, we just announced a half a billion dollar investment in, uh, in the Rouge plant and over $7 billion spending in Michigan. Uh, so this is to complement that. We're already accelerating, hiring more people. Uh, just for the Lightning, we're going to hire almost 500 new people, uh, and, and this complements that. Yeah, the reason why we chose uh, this location, uh, you know, battery plants, we, we have three of them. Uh, this is a million vehicles worth of batteries, uh, and, and to, to build that many batteries, we need to have affordable energy. We need to have environmental approval for the sites. They need to be greenfield sites, uh, not any remediation from environmental issues like a brownfield site. And uh, there's actually not many of these sites around. The assembly plant is the biggest in our history, as you said. It's six mi square miles. Uh, there's just very few sites this big in the country. Uh, no flooding risk, no hurricane risk. Um, and and uh, after the Michigan investments, this is a, 
another great investment by the company. Now, Detroit may have missed out on one of the four new EV battery plants, but NBA Hall of Famer and member of Michigan's Fab Five Chris Weber broke ground on a $175 million, 180,000-square-foot cannabis facility in southwest Detroit, once again with Paul W. Smith. There's a lot going on here, but I want to get to something I saw near the end of the press release for yesterday's groundbreaking at 2599 22nd Street, just off Michigan Avenue. This quote, from you. Not only have minorities been excessively punished and incarcerated for cannabis while others profited, but they have had unequal access to education, which perpetuates cycles of low pay and unemployment. It is crucial that we allow those who have been impacted by the drug war and racism to participate and benefit from the cannabis industry. That lets us know just how deeply involved and how much you want us to understand that you are not just opening a marijuana facility, my friend, and I appreciate that. Give me some of your thoughts. Thank you so much for that, Paul. Um, You know, just one quick story. It's about the city of Detroit. It is about black and brown people that have been impacted, and it's also about white people in Detroit that have been impacted, in Michigan that have been impacted. You know, my mother taught at Mumford High School uh, over 20 years, and she had many opportunities to go to the schools in the suburbs and teach. And even though she encouraged me to go to Country Day because of education, she then said it's very important that she stays back and that she educates Detroiters at Mumford High School. It was always very important. She She intentionally stayed in Detroit to be a Detroit public school teacher. We have successful businesses around the country, namely L.A., Oregon, Massachusetts, um, Pennsylvania. Um, And I'm looking at all these places, and my business partners are so excited. They're so excited about the people, the culture, and everything that's going on. And I'm looking at all of the analytics, and I'm going, wait a minute. Detroit has has people that are so loyal. Detroit has people that have to use uh, cannabis for holistic reasons, um, for um, medicine, mood management, uh, sleep management, pain management. And why aren't we making an investment in Detroit? Well, very honestly, um, the narrative that's been on uh, Detroit, myself and others, is that maybe it is not, um, maybe it is not the most viable place uh, uh, to start companies and businesses. And, and I call bull on all of that. And uh, we're so excited after the partners came yesterday to see what's going on in Corktown, downtown, all around Michigan. Uh, my job is just to galvanize energy, synergy, great people in business, and make sure Detroit is included. So I didn't want Detroit to get left behind in our national rollout that's already being proven successful in some places that people didn't believe in. So I want to make sure that um, Detroit reaps the benefits and also uh, that I can be an honest broker to help educate um, for job placement um, and and other things in the city. So, yeah, it it means a lot to me, um, but it's also about uh, Detroiters benefiting because the cannabis business is going to be strong. There's no doubt about that. I just want to make sure our city benefits. And, And you know what, Chris? I don't know you really well at all, just from, you know, watching you, starting for me at the Fab Five, for many at Country Day, I'm sure. But uh, you sound so sincere, and you back it up with the fact you already have a a $100 million cannabis private equity fund for businesses owned by people of color with Jason Wild. I'm reading some of this from Crane's uh, Detroit Business. Um, So you've got this cannabis and CBD health company called Weber Wellness. 
you're successful. You're very successful. So you're not coming in here to take advantage of anyone for business. You're here to offer opportunity for people for a business that whether people like it or not is going to be strong and stronger as each day goes by. Definitely. Listen, Medicare and healthcare are going to pay for cannabis pretty soon. You know, what's an athlete? Is it me that played in the NBA and thank God I'm a Hall of Famer, it's an honor? Or is it my father that worked in the factory 30 years because we call each other for uh, remedies and say, how's your back feeling today? We'll try some Epsom salt. We'll try it. So what is an athlete? What is, uh, what is, you know, what keeps that health and wellness going? And so for me, it's very important, one, to help change the narrative and let people get educated that there are other alternatives uh, to medicine. Uh, and that's a whole conversation there. Um, but then, yes, on the other side, you know, what we have at this campus, it's going to be exciting. We have um, uh, record expungement. So for those nonviolent offenders that can't find a job because they have records, they can come down there, get the record exposed, and guess what? We'll put you through training, and then we'll get you job placement. It doesn't have to be in the cannabis business either for your record expungement because some people just may not be comfortable um, in the cannabis industry. So if we're, your record is expunged and you like to be placed in auto industry and others, we help uh, with that as well. We also have a virtual GED program. This means a lot to me. Uh, my father, um, my mother, um, being educated, uh, you know, she went to Wayne State. She has, you know, some wonderful degrees. And, and my father had a different situation. And him just working and putting, uh, working at the factory, making sure he had an electrical license, a plumbing license. Um, you know, we want to make sure that we give access to information, access to knowledge, because to me, that's, that's what really what, what racism is. Those that have power not granting access to a certain group. Weber joins Hall of Fame wide receiver Calvin Johnson, who started his own Detroit-based cannabis company earlier this year. Well, big win for the Free Britney movement when a judge suspended Britney's father, Jamie Spears, as her conservator after 13 years, replacing him with a CPA recommended by Britney's legal team until a final hearing in November. Tanya J. Powers has been covering the story for Fox News, and she spoke to Chris Renwick. Brittany was not a minor when this started. She, it was not like she was a 17-year-old kid who you know, couldn't handle her finances. She was a 27-year-old woman and you know, had two children. And this, you know, during this conservatorship, um, typically these are, you know, from, from what we've seen reported and, and you know, legal analysts say about conservatorships, these are generally done for people who you know, can't make their own, you know, financial decisions, things like that. Um, during all of this time, she's been putting out albums. She has been, you know, performing. She had a very successful Vegas residency. I mean, this is this is somebody who clearly is, you know, capable of work uh, because that's what she's been doing the whole time. Uh, and when she finally broke her silence uh, some months ago and addressed the court, you know, um, over, a, I believe it was a Zoom hearing, but she, you know, uh, addressed the court and said, you know, listen, I've been working this whole time. I've been paying all these people who are basically keeping me from being able to do what I want to do. Uh, she had said some shocking things during that that really got people's attention, which is, I guess, one of the reasons that, you know, folks really sort of sat up and started to take notice of this. Yeah. How much of the, the, the public outcry here do you think has has uh, seeped into the courtroom and, and perhaps played a role in, in Judge Penny's decision? I don't know that any of it played a role in her decision. Um, I would imagine that Brittany's own testimony probably played a huge role in it. Uh, but as far as, you know, getting the attention of the public, I think, I think that actually, I think that did a lot. The Free Brittany, you know, movement, 
which, at, you know, by some, it seems kind of like, oh, well, this is a fringe thing. These are just some hardcore fans, and, you know, they're dressing up and holding up signs and whatever. Um, they're kind of the fuel that's been on this the whole time. Uh, they've been at this for for quite some time, and with the uh, addition of the document documentary that was done last year, I think by the New York Times, um, and other like podcasts and things like that. That's that's really kind of what has gotten the public's attention in all of this. Yeah. As far as what you know swayed the judge, I'm not sure if any of that did. Uh, the judge is supposed to look at the evidence, and I'm going to go with that's what she's done. Uh, but yeah, it has it has definitely gained a lot of a lot of public attention in the last year. Yeah, uh, what well, I mean, conservatorships really at their core are to per help uh, help protect people uh, who are elderly uh, and, and not able to take care of themselves, and certainly those dealing with some sort of mental issue would would fall under that. Is this, I mean, perhaps the the largest case, or at least the most uh, talked about case of conservatorship that that we've come across? I mean, it seems that way. Uh, I Before this, I couldn't have told you anything about a conservatorship. You know, even when all of this started, uh, it. I think a lot of a lot of people just didn't quite understand what this meant. Um, I don't think anybody would probably have thought that it was as invasive as, as Brittany has, in her own words, says that it is. Um, you know, during her, like I said, during her testimony in court, she talked about, you know, the fact that she was not, she's not allowed to drive a car. She's not allowed to, like, be in a car alone with her boyfriend, now fiancé. She's not allowed to have children, any more children. She's not allowed to, I mean, the, the, the expansive, you know, kind of, the, the way this was put into place and what they, what they have supposedly, you know, I say supposedly, allegedly done, uh, because this is, again, her testimony, uh, it's just it's just shocking, honestly. If you go back and listen to the things she said in court about the way that she has been treated during this, it's just astonishing. Especially holding in your head at the same time, this woman's worth sixty million dollars, and she's been performing this whole time. Tom Izzo will begin his twenty seventh season as MSU's head basketball coach November 9th against Kansas. A lot has changed since Izzo took the helm in nineteen ninety five, like the transfer portal and the NCAA name image likeness policy, which went into effect during the off season. The Hall of Fame coach went on the Mitch Album show to discuss his views on both topics. I refuse to talk about whether it's good for the game because that's what everybody's doing and I think that's the mistake we're making. You should ask because everybody asks, is it good for the player? I think we had over 200 kids that put their name in the portal that never found a spot. So what yep. do those kids do? We're getting to the point now where we're not even going to recruit high school kids. We, we, it, you know, if some of the people out there, there's so many unintended consequences to what's going on. I mean, can you imagine? We want a kid, if he transfers, to sit out a year. Now remember, pros aren't transferring. They're going pro. Right. So most of the kids transferring are just college players. Um we want a kid to have another free year of academics. I mean, we have downsized what academics is to the nth degree. It's it's almost a shame what they're doing to it. You know, now we got leads that you don't have to go to school. I mean, come on. I mean, you know, everybody says, well, school's not for everybody. Well, hell, Mitch, it wasn't for me. They can always go. Love school. Who loves school? Right, right. But, but you, but you endured it because that was yeah. the price to pay to play college not, ball. Not only right? academically, but you know what you did learn? I met some of the best friends of it, but that are my whole life in college, right. and those people 
are still my best friends. And uh, so I think we're making a mistake because I think the average person thinks that benefit. Hey, we got a hell of a running back here. Hey, Michigan had a good uh, guy last year, um, a point guard. And we, we didn't lose a lot of guys to the portal. What we did is we talked to our kids and, that was the best opportunity for them to be successful was to leave. It was all mutual. I helped every kid get to where he's going, everyone. Mm -hmm. And yet, um, what about all the kids that made mistakes transferring? For every successful one, I mean, can you imagine if I told you how many guys wanted to leave after their first year of college? And we argued that as coaches, at least give us so that they can't leave after their first year because every kid is unhappy. Right. You know, yeah, unless they're a star <laughs> freshman, right. right. They're, they're not going to be oh, there's, happy. There's even that star freshman, he scored 30 in high school, he scores 20 in college. I mean, yeah. he's unhappy, mm -hmm. you yeah. know? So everybody's unhappy. But, you know, I think back to my first kid, Morris Peterson would have transferred 13 times. That's a revolving door. Every hour. Right. He made $70 million. Kenny, you, you want to ask a question? Team. Yeah, I was going to ask Tom, does uh, Bishop Sycamore have a basketball team? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, think about it in regular life, you know. You can't just transfer jobs because you're unhappy and everything and go to another place and everything you think works out. So many of these kids, there's, if I write a book, Mitch, that you're going to write for me, <laughs> it's going to be after I'm dead, though, because I don't want a book before, but if <laughs> okay. I do, it's going to be called Unintended Consequences, and I, I'll never say that it's bad for the game, even though I don't think it's good for the game. Yeah. I think it's worse for the kid. I'm going to survive. Uh, you know what I'm going to do? If all my kids transfer, I'm going to go pick up 10 kids in the portal, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to still win. Mm -hmm. I'm going to survive, but the kids are not going to survive because some of them are going to make bad decisions. I don't know if you saw the quarterback at Utah. He yep. transfers from Baylor to Utah. He gets to Utah. He starts three games. He's down 24 points. They replace him. And the, the, the next day, he transfers again. Huh. There's only so many places you can run from, you know. And uh, right. So I think it's going to hurt the poor kids in the long run and a large number of the poor kids in the yep. long run. Are you worried about the money, the NIL, Tom? I don't know how basketball, if you guys are getting involved with that this year. Yeah, but you know, I'm, you, I'm a little worried about it because, again, the guy at Oklahoma I saw, you know, had a bad game. They're chanting, you know, bring in the other guy hmm. because he made supposedly a million dollars. I don't know if that's true either. I think some of those are recruiting things. But, but I'm all for kids getting more. And I wish we could come up with something where we the scholarship would give them more. But... Um, I don't know. I think we've legalized cheating in a, in a way. I mean, cause, because, the, you know, in college, in high school, think about this, guys. You can do it in high school now and still go to college. So, I mean, can you imagine what kind of kids are going to come out of there? You know, I mean, I had trouble dealing from my 5000 a year at 30 to my 35000 and then to my half a million when I got the job. But I was 40, 38. Right. Um, can you imagine doing that at 15, 17? And that'll do it for Potsui this week. For full interviews or anything else you might have missed, go to thegreatvoice.com. See you next time.